the Culture and Animals Foundation. Think, create, explore, celebrate. Wednesday, 16th of June, 1824. We're in Old Slaughter's Coffee House in St Martin's, London. The coffee house is named not for the killing of animals, but after Thomas Slaughter, who opened the cafe on the pavement in 1692, when not all streets had pavements. We're here to eavesdrop on a meeting that would establish a new kind of organisation. It's an SPCA, a Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. It will be the inspiration for animal welfare organisations around the world and is still around 200 years later. We're going to meet some new characters and we're going to catch up with some we already know, including the Member of Parliament for Galway, Richard Humanity Dick Martin, who's enjoying his 19th century version of a cappuccino. He's on a mission to spring his new law into action. It's important to remember it because it was the first piece of animal welfare legislation. We still have a legal system dominated by people who believe that anthropocentrism is right, that it is proper to value humans over animals. Protests, campaigns, petitions, they've all got a place, but there are far too few legal challenges. And yet these two men managed to actually get majorities for the first legislation to actually protect animals from cruelty. It was a colossal achievement. Welcome to Martin's Act at 200, a six-part audio documentary celebrating the bicentenary of the Cruel Treatment of Cattle Act 1822, the first piece of parliamentary legislation anywhere in the world to protect animals. I'm Dr Alex Lockwood, author and activist, and I'll be your guide on this journey through the history of animal protection, exploring how close we've come to creating a world where animals have freedoms to flourish, and where we've not come close enough to that goal. In this episode, we're looking at the impact of Martin's Act and how attention to the treatment of animals unfolded over the 19th century in Britain and the United States. The meeting in the coffee house has been organised by Reverend Arthur Broom, who spent much of the last two decades arguing the case that God created animals and that man, or humanity as we'd say today, has the obligation to respect them, or at the very least not to inflict undue cruelty. For Broom, Britain needs an organisation that can enforce this self-evident Christian belief. Our country is distinguished by the number and variety of its benevolent institutions, begins the Reverend. But shall we stop here? Is the moral circle perfect so long as any power of doing good remains? Or can the infliction of cruelty on any being which the Almighty has endowed with feelings of pain and pleasure be consistent with genuine and true benevolence? Listening to Broom's words at Old Slaughter's are 21 men. Yes, all men. The meeting's chair is Thomas Fowl Buxton, another Member of Parliament, also later owner of the Truman Brewery on Brick Lane. Also in attendance are the abolitionist William Wilberforce, more clergy, including Reverends George Bonner and George Avery Hatch, and a Jew, Louis Gompertz, who we'll come back to later. The great and good of British politics, the Church and its aristocracy votes to establish a society to enforce Martin's Act and administer genuine and true benevolence to the animal kingdom under God. In learning about our movement's history, it's important to know the failures too. It should be noted that there was a a previous attempt to set up an organisation of this kind in Liverpool, but it didn't succeed. And a version of it subsequently became the, the Liverpool branch of the SPCA. That's Kim Stallwood 
who we've met in episodes one and two. A lifelong advocate for animals, he's the author of Growl, a book all activists should read. A previous meeting at the coffee house in 1822 had recognised the need for a society. But in this gathering, Broom is voted secretary. Broom had already funded prosecutions of those who displayed cruelty to cattle and other animals, so it made sense for him to continue in that role. He'd also paid for an inspector, a man called Charles Wheeler, to monitor abuse at Smithfield Market. Smithfield, which remains today Europe's largest meat market, was then also a slaughterhouse, where cows and sheep were literally thrown into a hole to be killed underground. Wheeler continued as its inspector until 1826, but was let go when the society ran out of money to pay him. In fact, the organisation nearly didn't make it into the 1830s. Like Richard Martin himself, and many subsequent animal advocates perhaps, Broom was not good with money. Kim Stallwood again. He led the organisation, but led the organisation so it went into debt. And then he was imprisoned for the debts. And uh, Martin and Erskine had to raise money to, to pay off the debts so that Broom could get out of prison. Fortunes improved when the then Princess Victoria became the society's patron in 1835 at the age of 16. Three years after becoming Queen in 1837, Victoria granted the SPCA full royal patronage. The SPCA was henceforth known as the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Although we'll talk more about the current status of animal protection and legislation in episodes 5 and 6, it's worth noting one thing now. These words you're hearing were composed on the same day that Animal Rebellion, the grassroots movement I helped found in 2019, occupied the headquarters of the RSPCA to demand it return to its roots in standing up for farmed animals, rather than rubber stamp their slaughter with their farm-assured label. I may not know what Martin, Broom and Buxton would think about their organisation recommending animal slaughter, but I do know what one former RSPCA council member thinks. So I did my first fundraiser for the RSPCA when I was 12. That's Jane Tredgett former council member of the RSPCA, micro-sanctuary provider and founder of the organisation Humane Being. I read a couple of newspaper articles that really shocked me and I can still remember it to this day. One was about fox hunting and the other was about two boys tying fireworks to a poor cat and it just really made me want to do something. I did a sponsored swim for them. Like many people involved with the RSPCA, Jane began by giving her time to help animals, but quickly stepped further in. I started volunteering for a local branch of the RSPCA, became a trustee for them, moved into being a trustee for a larger branch that had a rescue centre, and the first one was just run by volunteers, and um, then moved on to a role within the National Society of the RSPCA, and I did 10 years, ending up as vice-chair of the National RSPCA board. So, Jane is someone who's seen the society from the inside. Sad to say, the organisation has, in her eyes, struggled to keep connected to its roots. From the outside, the RSPCA was the organisation I wanted to be involved in. But what drew me to be involved in the national RSPCA was the strategic aspect. So they do international work, campaigns, they look at companion animals, but also farmed animals, laboratory animals and wildlife. They also have the most power 
to change the world for the better for animals. But when I got there, I actually found it incredibly disappointing and frustrating because the reality is that all that boldness and fresh thinking with Richard Martin, who of course was one of the founders of the RSPCA, seemed to have withered out. And like Animal Rebellion, Jane believes she knows which animals the RSPCA is failing most. Particularly, I felt they were letting down farmed animals very badly. And I was actually on the RSPCA Assured Board, or Freedom Food is the actual the company name. And again, some good thoughts, but where is the thought that it needs to end completely? And none of that was really there. A bicentenary is an opportunity for the society to reflect on what it's done and where it's going. And with their new chief executive, Chris Sherwood, the RSPCA has a chance to do just that. And Jane has a suggestion from whom Sherwood should be learning. Time now to go back to the Richard Martin philosophies, William Wilberforce and the other founders. Let's, you know, I feel like we're letting them down. I really did. In every meeting, I felt like, what would they be saying about this? Jane has set up the Scrap Factory Farming Campaign, which has brought a judicial review against the UK government to abolish factory farming over its danger to both human and animal health in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll hear a lot more about that in episodes five and six, including from Jane and the lawyers arguing the case in the courts. So, why is it important to think about the founding of the SPCA today? Well, as we've heard from Jane, its original focus on cruelty to cattle and other farmed animals is very different from its fame today as mainly an organisation that rescues cats, dogs and other pets. This shows that organisations do change, sometimes become more, but sometimes less radical. Any organisation that begins with a clear intention can lose its way, but it can also rediscover that earlier commitment. However, there's often real resistance to looking at the past and learning from it. Why don't we look at the history of the movement? Why does the movement not foster and encourage its supporters to understand its history? Kim Stallwood again. I think the animal movement doesn't understand the importance of the history because they don't see that it has a role to play in the activities of organisations which are very geared up to churning out uh, shock horror stories and using them as vehicles to constantly get people to support those organisations. Kim believes these celebrations offer the RSPCA a real opportunity. Uh, an organisation like the RSPCA, which has its bicentenary coming up in, in 2024, is going to focus on uh, its bicentenary and look at its past. They recognise it as an opportunity to reaffirm itself and reassert itself and its key role in the history of the country and use it as a way to sort of garner more public support. So, as Shakespeare says, the past is prologue. But let's return to 1824 and meet an individual who is not only useful in thinking about how our learning history can affect the future, but is a case study for intersectionality, tolerance and cultural power dynamics in the animal movement and wider society today. It's time to meet Lewis Gompert. Are animals not furnished with most feelings similar to our own? They indisputably evince in an eminent degree most of the same passions. 
things which affect us generally seem to affect them in the same way, and at least the following sensations and passions are common to both. Hunger, desire, love of liberty, playfulness, fear, shame, anger, and many other affections, but little occasion have they to exercise such a faculty. Gompert took over the SPCA in 1828, since Arthur Broom, unable to continue after spending time in prison, stepped aside. Gompertz was born into a large and wealthy family of diamond merchants, but being Jewish, he was not allowed to attend university. He was also distinctive in another way. Yes, I understand from literature written at the time about him, he says he was a vegan. He wouldn't use the word vegan, but he you know, did not eat eggs and dairy and milk, I think. Gompertz's radicalism extended beyond food. He refused to wear leather or silk, or to ride in coaches due to the suffering of the horses. In the same year he co-founded the SPCA, Gompertz published Moral Inquiries on the Situation of Man and of Brutes, which laid out his ethical view on animals, which was also a critique of capitalism and the oppression of women. Despite Gompertz's abilities in campaigning, fundraising and administration, as a Jew and a vegan and a proto-feminist and a socialist, he was never quite accepted. That's not surprising. You'll remember that Richard Martin himself was a hunter and carnivore, while Gompertz was opposed to hunting and all other forms of animal exploitation. For most, and in the context of the SPCA's financial difficulties, Gompertz was just too radical. Other committee members protested at his Pythagorean principles, named after the famous mathematician and philosopher who was considered the West's first vegetarian. They disliked Gompertz's veganism because it stemmed from the very unchristian teachings of Porphyry of Tyre, the 3rd century Neoplatonist. Tensions reached ahead in 1832. Because the society wanted to have a Christian basis in its ethos and Gompertz was a Jew, he, he was kicked out basically, um, which is really shocking. To ensure Gompertz couldn't appeal, the SPCA adopted a resolution that the proceedings of the society are entirely based on the Christian faith and the Christian principles. Gompertz and his followers left and formed the Non-Sectarian Animals Friend Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Even that proved unsustainable, with some members forming a splinter group. The stated reason that they were unhappy was because Gompertz believed that animals had souls. Argued Gompertz... Therefore, it is plain that no particular thing can be made by a machine at all, neither an atom or matter, which is the only identity of matter, nor the soul, which is the only identity of a person. And this applies also to every other animal or vegetable, as everything, if it feels, must, it appears, have an identical self or soul, similar to that of any other being. No feeling can, it appears, be without reference to some self or soul. Yes, I know. What's so wrong with that, you might wonder. It's impossible to know what would have happened to the SPCA, let alone animals and society, if Gompertz's spirituality, veganism and radical position on rights had been embraced. Would the society have survived to 1835, let alone to this day? Would animal rebellion have been necessary or even possible if Gompertz's vision had been embraced earlier. What is indisputable, however, is that the presence of Louis Gompertz in the history of animal advocacy offers clear proof 
the issues of racial identity, class, religion, gender and political philosophy are intrinsic to the success or failure of the animal movement and have been from the very beginning. Gompertz ran the Animal Friend Society until 1846 when he left to care for Anne, his terminally ill wife. After she died, he spent the rest of his days speaking and writing on behalf of animals, including his book, Fragments in Defence of Animals. Louis Gompertz, the vegan defender of animals, died from bronchitis in December 1861 and is buried in a churchyard in Kennington in South London. When I was younger, I used to walk past the churchyard every day on my way to work. Back then, I had no idea it contained such a major figure. I too didn't know my animal advocacy history. It's 1835, 13 years after Martin's act and a year after Martin's death, a new parliamentary advocate has stepped up. Joseph Peace, a member of the Society of Friends and the SPCA committee, as well as MP for South Durham, and the first Quaker member to sit in the House of Commons brought about changes and Peace's Act secured most of the reforms which Martin had attempted to introduce during the 1820s. That's Hilda Keane, social historian and author of many books, including The Great Cat and Dog Massacre. This time, the Peace Act prohibits premises from staging baitings of bulls, bears, badgers, dogs and other animals where William Poultney, Thomas Erskine and Richard Martin all failed to legislate against the cruel sport of baiting, Pease found a way to succeed. On July the 14th, 1835, he rose to address the House. I trust that the bill would be suffered to pass, as it is imminently calculated to prevent the dreadful cruelties which are daily practised towards animals. I would be the last man in the world to support the measure if it tended to abridge the amusements of the poorer classes, but I am persuaded that it will have no such effect. Class raises its head again. What this new act would not do is address the sport of the upper classes, fox hunting, fishing or hair coursing. However, even if Pease had to strategically ignore blood sports and the elite, as we still often have to do today, the mood in the country was changing. Helen Cowie, Professor of Early Modern History at the University of York and author of Victims of Fashion, whom we met in earlier episodes, tells a mostly unknown story that shaped public perception at the time and, she believes, made the Pease Act legislation palatable for members of Parliament. It concerns a man called George Woomwell, who in 1825 ran a travelling menagerie. This story involves six dogs and two lions. Settle in and settle your stomach, because this story is worth hearing in full. So it is rather unpleasant. So effectively, Woomwell, who is this travelling showman, um, decides to pit, um, well, he's got two lions, one called Nero and one called Wallace. And he initially decides he's going to pit Nero against um, six dogs. And these were dogs that had been used for things like like ratting, uh, things like bull baiting. So he, he takes um, Nero and puts his cage in this old disused factory and he creates this special arena where the dogs are kind of fed into the cage to fight against Nero. What's controversial actually for, for this this first um, round of the lion fight is that the dogs effectively beat Nero. Uh, he's 
often portrayed as being this old sort of soppy lion who's been raised in captivity, doesn't have any idea how to fight, and the lot the lions that the dogs effectively grab him and, and maul him. He survives, um, but it's it's deeply unpleasant. The following week, um, Woonwell organises a second fight between his other lion, Wallace, um, who is um, named after William Wallace. He's he's born in Scotland, and he's much more ferocious. And in this case, the lion emerges victorious and kills several of the dogs. Um, so this is all very very controversial, particularly because what's going on in the back in the background at this time is um, Martin is trying to push legislation through Parliament to ban bull baiting and, and bear baiting. So you have to see it against that that context. The fight in itself is is seen as unfair um, because in the case of Nero, he's he's been kept in captivity and he's being pitted against these dogs that are seen as being in, in premium condition. So it's it's described in a lot of the newspapers in quite grisly detail and there's there's quite a lot of um, outcry about it. There's also the concern raised quite strongly that A, this doesn't look good for for, for Britain, you know, Britain wants to pit itself as being this um, civilised country that doesn't countenance animal cruelty. Uh, and people make a lot of comparisons with, with bullfighting in Spain and, and other um, sort of cruel pursuits overseas. And the slippery slope argument is raised. So the idea that people will watch a lion fight and then they might go away and commit some other form of, of brutality. Uh, there are explicit references made in the coverage of, of the lion fight to, to Hogarth's famous four stages of cruelty, where the, the protagonist... Um, is initially um, beating a horse and butchering a dog and then later uh, kills somebody. So it's, it's, it's seen as a sort of very negative thing for people to, to be doing. And, and so, yeah, it, it, it generates this big outcry. Some people actually speak in Parliament. There's a guy called Colonel Woods who initially wasn't going to vote for the, the bull baiting bill, but decides that he will because he's so appalled about what he hears happening at, at Warwick. So it does have a bit of an impact. And I think it possibly shapes the wording of the subsequent 1835 Animal Cruelty Act, which then explicitly it bans the baiting of any um, domestic or wild animals, just in case anybody was thinking of baiting a lion in future. So yeah, it fits in with the, the RSPCA's or SPCA at that time's attempts to kind of extend the law um, to cover other forms of, of brutality. The Peace Act passed by 30 votes to 16. Its importance was in finally overcoming this resistance to legislate against cruel sports. And as Cowie says, not only for the poor. The Peace Act was itself repealed and replaced by the Cruelty to Animals Act of 1849, full title, an act for the more effectual prevention of cruelty to animals. The 1849 Act reiterated the offences of beating, ill-treatment, overdriving, abusing and torturing animals. It increased the maximum penalty to £5 and compensation of up to £10. The Act was amended to include a prison sentence for the unlawful killing of any animals covered. The word animal was defined as Any horse, mare, gelding, bull, ox, cow, heifer, steer, calf, mule, ass, sheep, lamb, hog, pig, sow, goat, dog, cat, or any other domestic animal. It wasn't all just great men in Parliament who were acting. Historian Hilda Keane emphasises that citizens were stepping up to prevent cruelty as well. Again, settle in and settle your stomach. Importantly, acts of ordinary people continued to occur after the introduction of the 1835 Act. So in one instance, two young women, Elizabeth Jones and Sarah Hall, were considered to be cat skinners, but it was redefined as theft, simple larceny, 
And the first person to give a statement in court was not the police constable who had arrested the two, but James Matthias, an auctioneer's porter. He then came to court as a witness and as the cat owner. He explained he lived with a large black cat on whom he had previously attached a collar and padlock and knew them to be mine. It was the collar, not the cats, which determined their conviction. As they were taken to the station, bystanders intervened, asking if they weren't ashamed of themselves. The two women were indicted for seat stealing for the theft of one collar, value six pennies, and one padlock, value three pennies. So no judgments related in any way to cat mistreatment or skinning were made. So, was there no sympathy or justice for the cats? Well, maybe some. But the two women were then transported for seven years with Judge Mr Baron Gurney declaring that they should not have any opportunity of committing their barbarities in this country. Pease Act laid the ground for follow-up legislation, which created vet hospitals, improved animal transportation and, importantly, led to the creation of some famous animal shelters that are still there today. We're in Hull in 1835, a port in northern England, home to Mary Tilby, knee Bates. Hull happens to also be the home of the first regional branch of the still new SPCA. Mary is a supporter, but alas, women's involvement is still restricted to patronage. There won't be a women's section of the RSPCA until 1870. Nevertheless, she's inspired. In the 1850s, and now separated from her husband, Mary moves to North London to care for her ailing mother. There, she, her father and brother, live a relatively uneventful life until Mary's friend, Sarah Major, brings her an abandoned dog to care for. The dog sadly dies, but Mary decides to act. In 1860, she sets up what's called the Temporary Home for Lost and Starving Dogs, and she sets it up in the scullery, the washroom attached to the kitchen of her home. As the number of dogs delivered to her grows, she rents some nearby stables with the help of the RSPCA. Mary holds her committee meetings at the RSPCA offices just down the road. Of course, this being humanity, not everyone approved of compassion and care for dogs. The Times newspaper ran a story ridiculing the idea of opening a home for dogs when there were people without homes. It accused Mary of letting her zeal outrun her discretion. But Mary had powerful and renowned supporters too. The novelist Charles Dickens wrote about a remarkable institution that has saved over a thousand dogs this year alone. By 1864, the shelter's finances were sound and that year it handled 2,000 dogs. Mary Tilby died in 1865, knowing her beloved dog's home was secure. She never saw its final location though. By 1871, bigger premises were needed so management moved the shelter to its current location south of the Thames and it became Battersea Dogs Home. Even though the shelter took in cats from 1883, its name remained the same until 2002. It's likely, of course, that the hundreds of thousands of animal shelters around the world today would have emerged at some point to deal with the cruelty and overbreeding of cats, dogs and other petted animals. And if Mary Tilby hadn't stepped up, someone else might have. But she did step up, nonetheless. And it's worth remembering the thousands of Mary Tilbys all over the world doing this work who remain unknown and unsung. It's also valuable to recall that it was legislation 
and official societies to enforce that legislation. First Martin's Act, then the SPCA, then Pease's Act, that helped. Legislation matters just as much as people of goodwill and a robust civil society in shaping our attitudes to animals. Positive changes, and some setbacks, weren't taking place in Britain alone. In the United States, laws were being passed that introduced this new social feeling, concern for the animal. In some ways, the US was ahead of the UK. In 1641, the Massachusetts Bay Colony decreed the first animal protection provisions. They stated, No man shall exercise any tyranny or cruelty towards any brute creature which are usually kept for man's use. The state of Maine passed the first animal cruelty law in the United States in 1821, the year before Martin's Act. That statute provided that if any person be convicted of cruelly beating any horse or cattle, they'd be fined between two and five dollars, or imprisoned for up to 30 days, depending on the offence. So, why is the Maine Act not, um, the Maine Act instead of Martin's Act? Well, it helps to have a charismatic sponsor who makes speeches, threatens duels and takes people to court. Second, Britain still thought of itself as a colonial power, and you could argue, sadly, still does. But third, Martin's Act inspired New York State in 1829 to pass a law. Every person who shall maliciously kill, maim or wound any horse, ox or other cattle, or any sheep belonging to another, or shall maliciously and cruelly beat or torture any such animals, whether belonging to himself or another, shall upon conviction be adjudged guilty of a misdemeanor. From the 1830s to the 1860s, other states adopted New York's law. Massachusetts in 1836, Michigan in 1838, Connecticut and Vermont in 1854, and Minnesota in 1858. And all broadened the law to apply not only to horses and oxen, but to other animals, as long as the animal was owned. New Hampshire adopted some of the New York law in 1843. Tennessee drew up a law in 1858 about animal cruelty, but didn't use any of that damned Yankee language. Pennsylvania's law of 1860 used the 1829 New York law, but expanded it to include other domestic animals. Then we get to 1866 and Henry Berg. Born into a wealthy family, Berg joined the family shipbuilding business and attended Columbia College in New York City. He never completed his studies though, but went to Europe instead for five years, where he witnessed various cruelties committed upon animals, and met Lord Harrowby, then president of the RSPCA. Harrowby impressed Berg and led him to dedicate his life to ending animal cruelty. He quit his government job in 1863 and spent the next few years organising before, in 1866, establishing the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, which like the RSPCA, is still around today. Berg was not a lawyer, but with many political connections, he was able to influence the drafting of legislation. His first effort in 1866 amended the language of the New York State's law from 1829 to say, Every person who shall by his act or neglect maliciously kill, maim, wound, injure, torture or cruelly beat any horse, mule, ox, cattle, sheep or other animal belonging to himself or another shall, upon conviction, be adjudged guilty of a misdemeanour. This was a significant step forward. The provisions applied regardless of the ownership of an animal. 
and negligence, as well as intentional harm, could lead to criminal liability. Finally, the list of illegal actions was expanded. But Berg also knew, as Martin did 44 years earlier, that a law is meaningless unless it's enforced. Berg realised that if the law was to have any meaning in the streets of New York, it was up to him and his newly formed ASPCA. He had the power to arrest lawbreakers and was appointed a prosecutor so he could also argue before a judge. A landmark was the Turtle case. As described by journalist Sidney Coleman, Berg discovered a boatload of live turtles that had been shipped from Florida on their backs with their flippers pierced and tied together with strings. When the captain of the vessel refused to turn the turtles over, Berg caused his arrest, together with the members of his crew. They were taken to the tombs, but were later acquitted of cruelty by the court. The judge, before whom the case was tried, told Berg to go home and mind his own business. A satire in the New York Herald a few days later set all New York talking. So, despite the court outcome, the turtle case was to greatly increase the number of supporters and friends of the new society. Berg had struck a chord. In just a few years, the states of Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Illinois, New Hampshire and New Jersey had adopted the same pattern of legislation as that in New York, with new criminal laws and the creation of state SPCAs. Henry Berg, unanimously elected as the ASPCA's first president, held that position until his death in 1888. We're nearly at the end of this incomplete history of the 19th century and its laws, actors and advocates for animals. But there's one major piece of legislation, one movement and especially one figure who cannot be left out. For once, it's not a group of wealthy men, but women, and one in particular at the centre. Francis Power Cobb was an Anglo-Irish writer, social reformer and anti-vivisection activist, as well as a leading women's suffrage campaigner. From the 1850s to the 1870s, she'd been active with many others, mainly women, in bringing attention to the horrifying suffering of animals in laboratories at the hands of unlicensed, careless or callous scientists. You'll recall from episode one, Hogarth's 1751 fourth stage of cruelty, when Tom Nero's body is cut up in a packed and distracted auditorium. Throughout the 19th century, as attitudes towards animals had changed, laboratories as medicine and science tried to professionalise. In 1873, John Burden Sanderson, a leading physiologist and one of the few scientists in England then regularly using living animals in his research, published Handbook for the Physiological Laboratory. On the one hand, it claimed legitimacy for live experimentation through its articulation of standards of practice, while on the other, it argued that the discipline needed to recognise and respond to animal suffering. For Cobb, Sanderson's book, With minute directions for performing hundreds of operations, proved that the danger was not remote or theoretical, but already present and at our doors. Remember, this was at a time when anaesthetic was not regularly used for animals undergoing experiments. The RSPCA were involved too, petitioning the British Medical Association to adopt regulations to ease animal suffering, if not end their use. Cobb was more radical. As the main work of civilization has been the vindication of the rights of the weak, it is not too much, I think, to insist that the practice of vivisection 
in which this tyranny of strength culminates is a retrograde step in the progress of our race, a backwater in an onward-flowing stream of justice and mercy, no less portentous than deplorable. Cobb also lamented. By some strange and sinister fatality, the chosen victims at present are the most intelligent and friendly of our domestic favourites, the cats who purr in love and confidence as they sit beside us on the hearth, the dogs whose faithful hearts glow with an affection for us, truer and fonder than we may easily find in any human breast. In 1875, a royal commission was set up, largely due to pressure put on the government by campaigners such as Cobb. In May of that year, two draft bills to regulate the use of living animals in scientific experiments were presented, one to the British House of Lords and one to the Commons. The first by a few days was known as Henneker's Bill, and it called for all vivisections to be performed at premises specifically registered for that purpose and to be open to inspection by the Home Secretary. It further required that anaesthetics be used in all experiments. The bill provided for fines of up to £20 for violation. Henneker's bill had been drafted at the request of Cobb, who had, also in 1875, founded what was to become the largest anti-vivisectionist group in England, the Victorious Society for the Protection of Animals Liable to Vivisection. The second bill was intended to nullify the first. It had been pulled together through the efforts of supporters of vivisection, including Charles Darwin, Thomas Huxley and John Burden Sanderson himself. This bill proposed instead the mere regulation of painful experiments on living animals and recommended the legalisation of all painless experiments, including in this definition all those conducted under anaesthesia that were for the purposes of scientific discovery but for no other purpose. The second act passed but was criticised by Cobb and the new National Anti-Vivisection Society, itself founded in December 1875, as infamous but well-named, in that it made no provision for public accountability of licensing decisions. That is, there was little, if no, enforcement or oversight. This fight continues to this day. Even just earlier this year, three activists broke into MBR Acres, a beagle breeding facility in the UK, to rescue five dogs from a life of vivisection. Although its most famous manifestation, the Brown Dog Affair, was to usher in the 20th century. And that's where we'll pick up again with episode four of Martin's Act at 200. I hope you'll join me then. Thanks to Martin Rowe, Mir MacDonald, Ryan Rhodes, Barbara Hewson, Eunice Wong, and all those who gave their time to be interviewed for this and the other episodes of the audio documentary. If you've enjoyed listening, please share the link for subscribing, www.chart2050.org. You can also listen to the full interviews there and go deeper into the histories of the RSPCA and the laws of the 19th century than I've had time to include in this episode. Martin's Act 200 is a production of the Culture and Animals Foundation. The Culture and Animals Foundation. Think. Create. Explore. Celebrate.